it makes sense that the good life should be one that makes you happy. Some women were voluntarily introspective after keeping their logs, and I have shared their insights throughout this book. But I didn't ask people whether they were happy, partly because the question is so fraught. Happy when? While on the phone with me? Life is not static. Some participants recognized elements of life that didn't work. When I circled back six to 12 months later, they'd made major changes from leaving jobs to moving. One woman who'd moved and switched daycares actually used the word glorious to describe her new morning routine. We know from surveys of moment-by-moment contentment that people are happier while engaged in intimate relations than while driving to work. Any given week likely features both. Hour-by-hour happiness doesn't rise with household incomes past $75,000 a year, though overall life satisfaction keeps climbing well past $100,000. Random phone polls don't find many very high-income households. Because there aren't that many, one constraint I faced in enrolling people in this study. But one survey found that the vast majority of people in high-income, $100,000-plus households called themselves very happy. None called themselves not too happy. Be that as it may, here's an interesting statistic from one Pew Research Center analysis. Women find every activity more tiring than men do. This is true for work, childcare, and housework, which might make sense, but it's even true for leisure, though we're talking low absolute numbers in this category. I don't know why this is. It may be the stories we tell ourselves that there is always more we should be doing. It may be a comparison to our partners. In two-income households with kids, fathers have about 4.5 more hours of leisure per week than mothers, though they also log 10.7 more hours at the office. Perhaps women feel constantly on call in their lives, at work and at home. Stress can lead to complaints, even if objectively things look good. After I shared one woman's work and sleep hour totals with her, a perfect 40 for work and about eight hours per night for sleep, she wrote me that, on paper, it kind of seems like I have nothing to complain about, and yet I still do. It is the, and yet I still do, part that inspires much angst and speculation in work-life literature, and it is no doubt at the core of why plenty of women in the Mosaic Project, and in the world at large, feel that they don't have it all even if they meet my definition. People seek answers. Maybe it's that we're not mentally present, or that our leisure time comes in bits of time confetti, to use Schulte's memorable image. But no one gets a perfect life. Not people who stay home with their children, not those who are married or not married, not those who have kids or don't have kids. I want to push back against this expectation of a stress-free life because it keeps us from seeing the sweet moments that already exist. Counting blessings is trite, but there's something to it. My friend Emma Johnson, known online as the wealthy single mommy and a participant in the Mosaic Project, started a blog series in 2014 she called First World Fridays. In it, she wrote about whatever idiotic things she complained about during the previous week, mocked it, and turned it around toward gratitude for the amazing life she has. Some entries. My friends are buying second homes, and I'm falling behind. Or my personal favorite. 
My cleaning woman was slow with the laundry, which made me late for my vacay. None of this is to argue that problems don't exist. Johnson's life hasn't been bump-free. See the single mommy part of her blog title. Some women in the Mosaic Project had children with special needs, with all the challenges inherent in that. A few women, though not many, averaged less than seven hours of sleep per day over the course of their diary weeks. Nothing in this book should be construed as an argument that society couldn't choose to adopt policies that are more supportive of working parents.